Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. Today on the show, we're going to be talking a little about nitrogen stabilizers. We got a whole bunch of Ag PhD mailbag questions we're going to get to as well during our show today. If you've got a question for us, or if there's anything you'd like to talk about that's going on in your farm, you can give us a call 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can also email us radio at agphd.com or send us a note on Twitter, Ag PhD Media or Brian Hefty. All right, so nitrogen stabilizers. Uh, in my opinion, these types of products are going to get more popular in the future for a couple of reasons. There are two main nitrogen losses that we're really worried about environmentally. Number one is nitrate leaching. Okay, We've been talking about that for years and years. you got to be careful with the soil type you have and when you're applying nitrogen. And by using a nitrogen stabilizer, you can keep, if you use the right one, you can keep nitrogen in the ammonium form longer. And the key thing here is, and I know we're going to a chemistry class here, but soil has a negative charge. Nitrate also is negatively charged. So literally, when you have a negative and a negative, they're repelling, your soil is pushing that nitrate out. So that's not good. On the other hand, ammonium is positively charged. Well, positive, a positive and a negative, what do they do? They bind together. So that's why the ammonium is going to stay in your soil longer. You don't have to worry about that leaching away like you do with nitrate. So that's one of the big things. The other one is something that we've just been talking about for the last few years. And quite frankly, um, there are a lot of people that are just completely unaware of this as well. Nitrous oxide. Well, nitrous oxide is roughly 300 times more potent then carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. Yes, you heard me right. 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. When nitrogen is not used by the plant and it has a chance to go up in the atmosphere, some of that nitrogen could be in the form of nitrous oxide. So it could be a harmful or at least all depending on your view of greenhouse gases and global warming and everything, it could be a harmful greenhouse gas. Also, in saline soils, nitrous oxide discharge can be 40 to 50 times more than in non-saline soils. Seriously, that's a big deal. And you know the fix for saline soils, it's drain tile. So if anybody's ever given you a hard time about drain tile, I just say, look, as long as I'm doing it on true farm ground, I'm not draining the wetland here or anything else. Um, I'm trying to reduce the nitrous oxide coming out of my ground because it's happening and it's a terrible greenhouse gas. And they say 40 to 50 times more can go out of saline soils than non-saline soils. We got to get this problem fixed here. So anyway, it's one of the reasons we've been focused more on saline soils here in the last couple of years, spending a lot of time. And we've done several episodes here on Ag PhD Radio and also on Ag PhD, Ag PhD TV talking about saline soils. And it ties back to this whole nitrous oxide discharge and just the fact that it is a greenhouse gas. Well, anyway, if you use a nitrogen stabilizer, you can reduce some of the incidence of that. So it's... I really encouraging and I'm excited just with a lot of these nitrogen stabilizer products. They're good. We just don't see a lot of people using them in many cases. And I would say there are three different types of loss that nitrogen stabilizers can protect against. There's volatilization where basically you lay your nitrogen on the soil surface, it goes up in the air. 
leaching, which means it's going to go with water down in the groundwater, potentially, and then denitrification, where you get it in the soil, but your soil is so saturated that it becomes a gas and works its way out of the soil, again, going up in the atmosphere. So three different types. You just have to understand, hey, there are some different products. So I, for example, could get a cheap product just for volatilization, but it may not protect me against leaching and denitrification. So that's where sometimes guys will say, oh, I got this cheap deal on a nitrogen stabilizer. Whoa, 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 wait a second. (laughs) Did you get it? Did you get the one you actually need? Are you trying to protect against leaching, denitrification, or volatilization? Which one is it? So I just encourage you, make sure you're checking that out. Nitrogen stabilizers are more likely to pay when nitrogen rates are high, when nitrogen prices are high, in lower CEC soils or basically lighter soils, when nitrogen sits on top of the soil more than a couple days, when nitrogen is applied far ahead of when it's used, when soil pH is outside the range of about 6 to low 7s. So if it's a real low pH or a real high pH, you got a little bit more risk and the nitrogen stabilizer is more likely to pay. Also, stabilizers are more likely to pay when temperatures are warm, in wetter years, And when you have environmental concerns, just like we were talking about a little bit today between the leaching and this whole nitrous oxide discharge thing. So anyway, we're going to talk about nitrogen stabilizers throughout the show today. But I would really encourage you, if you have not been using a stabilizer, I'm not saying it's going to pay in all cases, okay? But I am saying I just encourage you to check it out a little bit more. And if you have any of those conditions that I just listed, which, let's face it, um, many of us may have several of those conditions. Uh, So you might have light soil. You might be putting a lot of nitrogen on. We know nitrogen prices are high. I think we, most all of us, have at least some degree of environmental concerns, all those kind of things. So lots of factors there will make it more likely to pay. I just think about it even on our own farm. When we're putting on some low rates in really heavy soil, we don't get much rain. I'm, I'm just not very worried about it. But I would say this. You think about where were your yields 20 years ago? Where do you, I mean, just imagine with me for a second where yields could possibly be 10 or 20 years from now. They're going to be higher on corn, on wheat, on hopefully every crop that needs a nitrogen application. So I'm just trying to say, when you stop and think about it for a second, it's like, all right, I remember we used to put on a fairly low rate of nitrogen. Now we're putting on more. What could we be putting on 10 or 20 years from now? It could be a lot. And so there are a lot of these practices that we talk about here on Ag PhD Radio. And what do we always say? Try them out on your farm. Well, You don't want to be waiting until, oh, now i got to put 300 pounds of nitrogen out 10 or 15 years from now because my yield levels are so high. You want to be trying these things, experimenting with them, figuring out how to minimize loss before you get to that point. So anyway, like I say, we'll talk about nitrogen stabilizers today. Stay tuned. This is Ag PhD Radio. 
There's no time to mess around when it comes to early season protection from yield robbing pests and diseases. Ethos XB Insecticide Fungicide is the next generation of at plant protection. Through your liquid fertilizer system, get broad spectrum defense and create an environment where seedlings can vigorously emerge with more uniformity, helping to optimize your productivity and yield. Get serious seedling defense with Ethos XB Insecticide Fungicide. Ethos XB Insecticide Fungicide is a restricted use pesticide. Always read and follow all label directions. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. There's an innovative new soybean herbicide on the market that's helping close the door on weed resistance and open new doors to productivity. Preview 2.1 SC Herbicide from UPL is a multi-mode of action pre-emergent that controls the most resistant broadleaf weeds at the beginning of the season and continues to control later weeds with strong residual activity. Ask your retailer about Preview 2.1 Herbicide from UPL and always read and follow label directions. When we told growers that New Bear Premium Trivolt Herbicide for corn delivers visibly clean fields for up to eight weeks, they were a bit skeptical. Um, we'll see how it works. So we decided to prove it. We set up cameras in multiple cornfields, treated them with Trivolt, and filmed for 24 hours a day. For eight weeks, we saw a variety of weather conditions, and Trivolt worked. See for yourself at TrivoltInAction.com. Trivolt is a restricted-use pesticide. Consult your state pesticide regulator for specific restrictions. Read and follow pesticide label directions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here, live in the Morton studio. Today on the show, we're talking about nitrogen stabilizers. If you've got any questions about that, just give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. So first on the show today, we've got Kelly Garrett with us. He's a farmer down in Iowa and also with the Extreme Ag Group. Kelly, how's it going today? Good. How are you, Brian? Excellent. All right. So we're talking about nitrogen stabilizers. How many different nitrogen stabilizer products would you say you've experimented with over the years, Kelly? Oh, a huge handful. Uh, <laughs> three, three specifically, but holy cow, there's a lot of them. You're right. Yeah, yep, many. And then there are other products, like I think about ammonium thiosulfate, or some people use humic acid. And both of those can give you some degree of nitrogen stabilization as well. So uh, where, where where do you start with all this? Like on your farm, I mean, what do you, what do, you do? When do you apply your nitrogen, and, and when are you putting a stabilizer with it? So... You know, our main source of nitrogen is still anhydrous, which is hard on soil biology and soil health. So because of that, I want to put my anhydrous on in the fall yep. because I believe then the biology goes dormant. And then in the spring, it's very forgiving and it, it's, it replicates and it heals up. Yes. But I want to do whatever I can to, to harm the biology as little as possible. Traditionally, the big stabilizer has always been NSERF, but that's actually harder on biology than just bare anhydrous. So we try to choose products that lessen that, the harmful effects. So what are you doing then? So th there's a product from Ag Explorer is Enzone GL. We mm -hmm. use that product or another product from Maristem is Maintain Elite. 
those products are promote the soil health and the soil biology, and they lessen the effects of the anhydrous while also stabilizing the nitrogen, and it's a source of calcium, which is our number one nu- nutrient deficiency. So the, there's, those are the reasons we choose to use those two products. Do you do any nitrogen with a planter, or, I mean, is your next application side dress, or, or what else do you do for our, them? Our next application would be the would be nitrogen in the 2x2, two two, and we do okay. supply a humic acid with it. Absolutely correct, because we're always trying to be mindful of the carbon-to-nitrogen ratio, which we want it to be seven to one, seven parts carbon, one part nitrogen, and it's all, it's a it's about balancing your soil so you have a balanced crop. Just putting a tremendous amount of of nitrogen there maybe is actually, uh, dare I say, a, a, a yield penalty because we got to make sure it's balanced. If you put all the nitrogen in and you don't have all the correct amount of carbon, you're kind of wasting your nitrogen dollars. How about side dress? Do you do side dress then too? We, we can't in our hills, Darren. We do a little bit on some of that flat, but what we do, we, we, use, we like to source product from Sound Egg. We had great uh, effects with that last year. We've been looking for something to do, and in our hills, there's just too much iron blight, so we can't do much side dress, and that, that's the product <laughs> that we've had luck with so far. Yeah, I, I I'm with you. We we maybe don't have hills quite as steep as you, but it's probably ten to maybe twenty percent of our acres are. It's highly erodible land, so we got to be really careful. Um, what else can you tell us about stabilizers? Maybe your experience and and the value you feel that they bring. I I feel that you know trying to do the soil health or pay attention to soil health and biology. You know the the end zone and the maintain in the fall are key things for us. And but I, I would even I'm excited about that. But any sort of humic acid that we can apply with our nitrogen, again to, to be mindful of that carbon to nitrogen ratio, is a very high priority. It's something that we've that Mike Evans and I have learned here in the last year or so, and we've started to focus more in on it because we're seeing results. The variable rate, uh, Brian, is very important sure. to me. We put on we put on less. We keep the rate the same with the planter and the two by two, okay? But with the anhydrous, we we're only putting on 80 pounds of nitrogen in the high yield areas, and we're putting on 240 pounds in the low yielding areas. And I know that might sound backwards, but it's because we've identified how much elemental nitrogen our ground is releasing. Yeah. And again, we're trying to maintain that balance. Yep, I agree with you 100%. The organic matter that's in the soil releases so much nitrogen that unfortunately a lot of people don't account for. It's a big deal. Well, we've been talking with Kelly Garrett. He farms down in Iowa, and he's with Extreme Ag Group. Uh, Kelly, thanks a lot for the time. Great insight as always. It was always great to talk to you, Brian. Thank you. You bet. All right, we're going to head down to the state of Arkansas now. Got Trent Roberts with us. He's with University of Arkansas. Hey, Trent, how's it going down there today? I'm doing good. I had a great uh, fried catfish lunch at a conservation meeting this afternoon, so I'm doing good. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, uh, that that sounds interesting. Hey, we're talking about nitrogen stabilizers today. Are nitrogen stabilizers used very commonly in your state of Arkansas? Well, so it's a little bit interesting, you know, the the one class of stabilizers that we swear by in Arkansas are actually urease inhibitors. Um, here in the Mid-South, we rely very heavily on urea as our primary nitrogen source for sure. the majority of our row crops. Yep. And, and those, man, urease inhibitors down here are worth their weight in gold. Why do you say that? Well, so a lot of the soils that we deal with are high pH. 
Um, and they're lighter textured soils where we can exacerbate that ammonia volatilization loss. Yep. And, you know, a good urease inhibitor can save you as much as 20 to 30% of your, your nitrogen application. That's what I was going to ask you next is if you had any data or what your studies have shown. So 20 to 30% on average, that's a really big deal. Um, where, where, you, you, so you mentioned high pH soil, light soil. Are there other soil conditions where you see the gain maybe even being more than that 20 to 30%? Um, not necessarily more, but there are certain environmental situations that are, are going to exacerbate that and get us on that that high end of 30%. So one thing that we found here is, you know, when we use an effective urease inhibitor, we can put out our urea in less than ideal conditions, you know, environment, soil moisture, yep. and it's going to protect that until we get into a situation where we can incorporate it with irrigation or rainfall. And it just, I mean, I hate to use this term, but it's a cheap insurance that helps us protect that nitrogen investment. I agree, but the question I get all the time is, well, how long is it going to protect me and how much is it going to protect me? In other words, if I want to like way overdo it on nitrogen, uh, what can I expect out of this urease inhibitor? Well, and that, that's the tricky part. I mean, <laughs> you know, here in the Mid-South, we, we've got our rates, I think, refined pretty well. Yep. And so what, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, you use this in urease inhibitor, and it's buying you time, sure. right? That's the way we want to look at it is we're buying you protection until, you know, you get the rainfall or you get the irrigation. I think in, in other scenarios, you know, a lot of times what we have to look at is the cost per unit of nitrogen. And what I try to tell people is the more expensive nitrogen is, the cheaper that makes your urease. Yes. Yep. Okay. Let me, let me, me. That's more of of how we need to look at it. Yeah. No, I agree with you 100%. The economics have to come into play here. So speaking of economics, this is another question that I'll commonly get. A guy says, all right, I need 200 pounds of nitrogen, or at least I think I do. If I got to spend some dollars on this, let's call it urease inhibitor, or any one of the nitrogen stabilizers, how do I recover that? So in other words, should I cut my nitrogen rate a little bit compared to another field where I don't want to use the stabilizer? Well, so I think, you know, anytime we're dealing with nitrogen management in particular, it, you know, we follow that law of diminishing returns where, you know, our first inputs, we get our greatest return on investment. Yep. And when we're putting out those higher rates, we're incrementally getting less. And so to me, the trade-off is, you know, you could almost cut off the cost of your urease inhibitor from your in rate get yep. that added protection and get the same yield uh, with what you would have gotten with an unprotected, just full nitrogen rate. Yeah, that's exactly how I've, re how I've answered that question too, because, and, and we did a bunch of nitrogen trials this year using some of these biological products and stuff. And what, what we found was not surprising. If nitrogen is not the yield limiting factor, adding more nitrogen isn't going to help you. So you got, you got to make sure you're dialing that in right. So I appreciate the fact you said uh, a lot of people down here have dialed it in pretty well. So that's good. We've been talking with Trent Roberts. He's with the University of Arkansas. Trent, thanks a lot for being on the show. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the call. You bet. 
All right, we'll talk nitrogen stabilizers just a little bit more, and we're going to get to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag. That's all coming up next here on Ag PhD Radio. Think ahead to planting. Schedule your planter inspection with the experts at CNB. Make sure your equipment is in top shape and ready for the field this spring. CNB is your local John Deere dealer offering expert service and customer commitment. Learn more or schedule your appointment online today at DeereEquipment.com. Get your planter ready for spring with Germinator Closing Wheels from Farm Shop MFG. And now when you buy 12 rows or more, get free shipping or 20% off an end zone bin system. Offer good while supplies last. So order yours today at FarmShopMFG.com. In 1923, Bert R. Benjamin had a vision, an all-purpose tractor that could do more. With that, the Farmall was born. This year, Case IH is celebrating 100 years of Farmall, 100 years of milestones, 100 years of innovation, passion, grit. And they're doing it through your stories. Share them at Farmall100.com. One lucky storyteller will win their own Farmall, the tractor that is the one for all. Officer Jones calling for backup. 10-4. Location? Graber back 40. Looks like we've got Palmer Amaranth, Kosha, some common water hemp. Resistant weeds. Copy that. You'll need a good tank mix partner. I'm sending tough 5EC. Come out with your hands up! Guys, we're surrounded. Crack down on repeat offenders. Add tough 5EC to your post-emergence tank mix. Learn more at toughonweeds.com. Always read and follow label directions. Tough is a registered trademark of Belgian Crop Protection. Warehouse, what can we do for you? Yeah, I'm looking for some nitrogen. All right, we're running low and it's awful pricey, but uh, let me check. Hold. The answer to low supply and high prices for nitrogen is Invita, a microbe with systemic nitrogen fixation. Invita works throughout the foliage and roots, providing a right place, right time source of nitrogen to maximize yield in corn, wheat, and soybeans. Yeah, we're all out, but... You know what? I'll take some of that Invita. <laughs> That's what I was going to recommend. Book your Invita while supplies last. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. With superior materials, craftsmanship, and best-in-class warranty, a Morton machine storage or workshop is built to stand the test of time. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit MortonBuildings.com. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at HeadsUpST.com. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We're talking about nitrogen management and specifically nitrogen stabilizers. Next on the show, we've got Mike Koenigs with us. He's with Corteva out in Illinois. Hey, Mike, how are you today? I'm doing great. We got some fresh snow on the ground today. 
Well, I'm never doing great when I have fresh snow um, <laughs> because it takes a lot of work to clean all that stuff up around me. But I, I don't know. I, I, I like warm weather a little better. A, a lot of our snow melted here the last couple of weeks, so I was, I was pretty happy for a while. But hey, we're talking about nitrogen stabilizers. And with Corteva, you have a number of different options there. Just can you talk to us in general about, first of all, spring nitrogen management, and then we can get specific into some of these stabilizers? You bet. You bet, Brian. So when we think about spring, um, there is a lot of nitrogen that goes on either pre-plant or early side dress. And those are applications where we need to think about a nitrogen stabilizer because those applications are oftentimes weeks or even months before that corn crop reaches that rapid nitrogen uptake. And so in that window of time, we're allowing that nitrogen time to go through nitrification, convert to nitrate, and then if we're getting a lot of moisture, we have potential for loss. So anything we can do to slow down nitrification, keep that nitrogen in that ammonium, that stable form longer, is gonna benefit that corn crop and and typically is gonna mean better standing corn, better yields at the end of the year. Okay, one one older product that Corteva started selling a long time ago was Enserve, and there's a comment a little bit yeah. earlier in the show about, hey, it's going on with anhydrous. We know anhydrous is tough on the soil life, and Enserve may not be really helping that necessarily. It also is going to potentially hurt a little bit of our soil life. Can you talk talk about that specifically and just microbes in the soil, and what does Enserve do exactly? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you want to say what's the mode of action of the ingredient that's in Enserve, it's an AMO enzyme inhibitor is the mode of action. And Enserve is, is very unique where it just has activity on the nitrosomonas bacteria, and that's the bacteria that kicks off that nitrification. And so sometimes people kind of maybe misunderstand it and think that, oh, if, if Enserve is is inhibiting nitrosomonas, it must be inhibiting all these other bacteria. And that's just not true. It's very specific to nitrosomonas bacteria and it inhibits them for a period of time. And then those bacteria will come back to life. The only thing nitrosomonas bacteria do in the soil is kick off nitrification. So there's no negativity to inhibiting them. So that's that's what it's doing in the soil. All right, so I think Enserve was probably the first nitrogen stabilizer from Corteva or from Dow years ago. Talk to us about some of the newer products now that are available from Corteva. You bet, you bet. So so Enserve was launched in 1976, so it has been around a long time. <laughs> and then around 2010, what, what, uh, what Legacy Corteva did is they figured out a way to encapsulate that active ingredient that's an insert, and we created the product Instinct. And so Instinct is a product where it's got an encapsulated form of that active ingredient, and the value of that means that it's surface stable, and it's easy to mix with our liquid nitrogens, whether that's 28%, 32%. We can also impregnate it on many urea and dry fertilizer blends and we can also put it with liquid manure to protect the nitrogen that's in all those sources of N and it does the same benefit in the soil as what Enserve has done with anhydrous for several decades. So we can we can keep that nitrogen and that ammonium form longer. We have less losses 
and and of course we we see healthier yields. But Enserve and Instinct have really been products for leaching and denitrification. So talk to us about volatilization and how you approach that. Yeah, so that's a good question. So um, so the I like to call it the below ground and the above ground losses. So sure. below ground is leaching and denitrification. That's your Enserve and Instinct, and then above ground it's the surface volatilization, and the industry standard there. Is an, is an active ingredient called NBPT, and that's an acronym for a, a long word I'm not going to get tongue-tied on. <laughs> but what that will do is that will help us protect against um, that urease enzyme, and it will protect us from surface volatility and losing urea forms of nitrogen to gas off into the atmosphere. And so Corteva also has a product called Max TG, which is powered with NBPT, so we can protect against that surface volatility. So if you are making an application of a urea-based product and you've got environmental conditions that are favoring uh, volatility, that would be a good tool in those applications. Mike, anything else you wanted to cover today with this talk about nitrogen stabilizers and just nitrogen management in general? Yeah, I think I think when I talk to growers, I think that the big misconception is is growers always think a stabilizer, oh, that's just for fall applications. Yeah. That's just a myth. There are a lot of spring applications, whether it's spring pre-plant, early side dress, where a stabilizer still brings a lot of benefit. Um, we see very healthy return on investments from that. So I would encourage growers to look at their spring nitrogen applications and look where does a product like this bring more value and protect that in through a time of the season when when there's a lot of loss potential. We've been talking with Mike Koenigs. He is with Corteva. Mike, thanks a lot for the time today. This was fantastic. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, one of the things I think about even on our farm, because you just mentioned their early side dress, we've been talking about that a lot the last couple of years because we've been in drought. For two and a half years, you've had drought. Well, until we get all this snow this winter. But anyway, <laughs> the point is this. I, I, we've made a lot of comments here on, on our show, on our TV show, dur during all our workshops and meetings that, look, if you're in a dry area like we are, you don't know when that rain's going to come. If you're a dryland farmer and you know that the corn crop's going to need a ridiculous amount of nitrogen once you get to probably about V8, V10, uh, you got to have it there and ready to go. Well, if you might not get rain for two to four weeks, that means you got to apply your nitrogen a little earlier, which means you're at more risk potentially for loss if all of a sudden an enormous storm pops up, which it very well could, or if the nitrogen has to lay on the soil surface. So... I mean, there are a lot of different reasons why you may consider a nitrogen stabilizer product. We just encourage you again, do your homework a little bit on this, check it out. But I, I, I will tell you the old school mentality, and this is one of the things my dad talked about quite often years ago. I mean, I'm not saying this was recent, but years ago it was always like, well, rather than put a nitrogen stabilizer on there, they're expensive. I'll just throw some more nitrogen out. <laughs> okay, you see where I'm going with this. Um, but keep in mind, Back then, we were talking about 100 pounds or 120 pounds. Well, now, with our big-time yield goals, um, it could be a lot of loss. I, I appreciated what Trent Roberts said. He said 20 to 30% potential for loss. Well, if that goes up in the air, 
okay, that there's that nitrous oxide thing we were worried about. Um, if that goes down in the ground and leaches away, now we got a groundwater issue. And it's not just a few pounds anymore. A lot of people are putting on lots of pounds. So I, I, I would just encourage you, if your strategy in the past has been, well, I'll just make sure I have enough nitrogen out to cover all the losses by putting more nitrogen on, you may want to rethink that. And here's the reason why. Because there are countries like, I know Denmark right now regulates people on how much nitrogen they can put out. Canada has been talking about this. Don't be surprised if you're in the United States, even in the next 10 years, you may get regulated on this. We all as farmers need to be very responsible with the nitrogen we're using. And the more we can show that, the more we can prove that out there, the less likely we are to have regulations that force us to do certain things that may not be the best thing for the crop, the soil, the environment, or anything else. I, I, I always say, you know, those politicians, they may or may not be great farmers. I know you're a great farmer. I just don't want somebody who doesn't farm telling me how to farm. But that's the direction that we're going to head if we don't put nitrogen on the right way. So anyway... I just encourage you, please learn everything you can about nitrogen applications, nitrogen stabilizers, because I think this is going to be a much bigger deal as we move forward. We have a lot of great questions coming up in the Ag PhD mailbag. The first one I'm going to get to right after this break is talking about volcanic rock and how that could be used as a fertilizer out in fields. We'll talk about that right after this. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy-duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kochia, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. Your crop deserves the best, not just a contender. Choose a Champ brand fungicide from New Farm for proven performance in the formula you prefer. Champ Formula 2 Flowable offers exceptional mixing and stability in a liquid copper. Champ Ion comes supercharged for superior coverage in a dry formulation. Any way you turn, New Farm has the copper solution you can win with. Put a Champ in your corner at newfarm.com slash uscrop. Precision crop nutrition pays. And AgroLiquid has precisely what it takes to help you succeed. The right products plus the right expertise to give you guidance based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. While our clean, seed-safe formulations and lower application rates make planter fertilizer easier than ever. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our in-field research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. Coming. The weeds are coming! Hey! Paul Revere! 
This whole midnight ride thing is getting really... But the HPPD-resistant weeds are coming. We've got Verdict Herbicide. Verdict Herbicide? Yeah, it's a non-HPPD corn pre-herbicide from BASF. Oh, well then, get some sleep. Yeah, will do. The weeds are coming! Switch to Verdict Herbicide! Always read and follow label directions! Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Waterhemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of Fierce Herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. Come on in. The Ag PhD mailbag is about to begin. Our first question comes in from Josh in Washington State. He says, I was talking to a company that's willing to spread nine tons per acre for free of volcanic rock or the byproduct of crushed basalt. They are able to do this because it helps capture carbon dioxide so they sell the credits to other companies the source is only 20 miles away from me they claim it'll help raise my ph i was thinking of trying it because some of the nutrients on the analysis i'm short in and it doesn't cost anything i just had a couple concerns does the sodium or silicon in the analysis worry you in nine tons i would get and forgive me i'm going to read like nine numbers to you here uh phosphorus 22 pounds Potassium, 161 pounds. Magnesium, 623 pounds. Calcium, 1,032 pounds. And so between that magnesium and calcium, I'm sure that's where you're getting the raise in pH, and I could absolutely see that. All right, sulfur, 25 pounds. Iron, 1,637 pounds. Manganese, 25 pounds. Silicon, 4,187 pounds. And sodium, 322 pounds. So, uh, Josh, I'm with you. The sodium at 322 pounds, the silicon in uh, in terms of uh, pounds, uh, that's a lot, 4187. I Yeah, I would worry about both of those. Even the iron, it's 1,637 pounds. I mean, that is, that's a lot. So, I mean, I doubt that that much iron is is going to just totally destroy your soil or anything like that like sodium could if you put that many pounds of sodium on but still you put that much of anything out there especially a micronutrient and it's most likely going to throw things out of balance so my feeling is i would be perfectly fine taking one or two tons would i take nine tons on my farm no possible chance now i would say this because i do dumb things all the time or crazy things however you want to look at it would i try would i be willing to try nine tons on just a little bit just a couple acres of my brother's ground sure i would (laughs) but yeah i just i think nine tons sounds a little excessive to me All right, next question here is Kenny from Ohio who says, I've got some soil tests and I have the ability to put on fertilizer in furrow and two by two. And I've got these furrow jets now that will throw the seed uh, through the wings, getting roughly three quarters of an inch on each side of the seed. So my questions are, I don't have any experience using these furrow jets with my low phosphorus levels. I want to use ProGerminator from AgriLiquid on soybeans through the wings 
of the Ferrojet, three three quarters of an inch off the seed, how many gallons can I use? Well, the the things that we always talk about are number one, we want to be conservative. We don't want to go. We don't want to get real carried away on stuff like the field that because he sent a couple different soil tests. The field that's going to soybeans, you've got cation exchange capacity as low as five point six. That means that's sand. And anytime we we're dealing with very light soil, we have to be even more cautious about what we put in furrow. So most agronomists out there are going to tell you zero. Zero goes in the furrow. If you're three quarters of an inch off the seed, would I be comfortable throwing just a little bit out there and throwing it with water to make it even safer because you spread it out a little bit more? Yeah, I, I, I would be willing to try a little bit, but not very much. On corn, he says his plan is to do five gallons pro germinator on the seed and probably 10 gallons at 28% through two by two on each side of the row. How much 1034-0 would you be comfortable with through the wings of the furrow jet on corn? Look, if I'm already putting five gallons pro germinator on the seed, I don't think I'd put any 1034-0 through the wings of the furrow jet. I mean, if you want to try just a little bit, fine, but you're already getting a fair amount of salt out there. Um, I'd be more comfortable if it was two by two on each side of the row. So I, I, I just, like I said, with your lighter soils, I'm going to be real cautious. The last thing you want to do is throw a whole bunch of fertilizer out there and see it hurt your crop. So yeah, give, give the furrow jets a try, run some stuff through the wings and give that a shot, but um, just, just be conservative. Okay. All right. Next one here is from Neil. And we were talking about pros and cons of no-till and just kind of running through that on, uh, on a television episode we had. And Neil's suggestion here for us was, please listen to some of these long-term no-till people because um, what you guys are talking about with the, the whole picture of soil health is not really uh, fully addressed here. The, some of these other guys have been doing this long-term no-till stuff. Um, they've been able to figure out a way to address some of your concerns. So we, we talk about sometimes on TV and, and our radio show here where we did we went to no-till on half our acres roughly. This is probably I'm gonna say oh, well it's over 25 years ago okay we were we stayed no-till on those acres for about 10 years. We ended up with two major problems. number one, nutrient stratification and number two, we just didn't solve the soil well uh, the the soil was cold, okay. And when you're planting really early in the spring into a cold soil, it's hard to overcome that. Um, we also weren't able to solve our compaction issue that we, quite frankly, should have solved prior to going into no-till. If we would have done that, I think things would have gone better. But, you know, one of the things that some of the long-term no-till people do and people that talk about regenerative ag and all that kind of thing is using a whole bunch of different crops. But the problem and the challenge that we have is... A lot of things just simply are not profitable when we're dealing with ground around us is selling ten to fifteen thousand dollars an acre. I I can't have some grass crop out there where I get a very very small return for a year, and then some other crop where I lose money for a year. And I, I mean, it just economically is really challenging. So I'm not saying that we can't solve any of the problems that we had. Uh, but I am saying it just becomes a real challenge economically, and there are lots of different ways to farm, and we are totally supportive, and we are willing to help anyone who wants to farm in almost any fashion possible. 
as long as it's legal, of course, and moral and ethical and all those things. But anyway, kind of along the same lines, only uh, a little bit different here is CB, who was commenting on the same kind of thing where we we're talking about no-till and then also moldboard plowing. He's from up in Saskatchewan. And he said, up here, you aren't going to find a moldboard plow anymore. A lot of people have gone to no-till. Uh, but we end up with a challenge because there's a fair amount of fallow ground. And and we end up with uh, with issues where soil doesn't warm up. And the soil is, uh, let's see, I'm trying to find the word that he used here, like stale or whatever. Uh, yeah, it, it gets to be a real challenge when you're in an area that's really cold. And you're trying to get that soil warmed up. But his comment here was he kind of prefers minimum till. And he says, well, it's kind of got some of the benefits of no-till and full tillage. I can get started seeding earlier in the spring. My soil's worked but not obliterated into powder. Um, I don't have compaction issues in rough fields that no-till brings. And then he goes, I'm surprised you Americans don't try heavy harrows and shallow cultivations more than sinking in that old moldboard plow half a foot into the ground. Those things belong in the museums. I'm not saying don't live in a sprayer, though, no, neither uh, – like no-till guys. So anyway, <laughs> again, there are a lot of different ways to farm, and it seems like every farmer out there has uh, a very uh, uh, very strong opinion on how they should farm. And again, we, we try to be as supportive as possible for you and whatever you decide for your farm. We are, we are here to help. We've done just about everything that there is, every practice there is, uh, tried a lot of different things. So I, I would just say um, experience often is a, it's just very educational when you have those experiences, but we don't have your soil from your farm. So we'll try to guide you as best we can, but everybody's going to be a little bit different. Every field's going to be a little bit different. One thing we have not tried is our question, our next question here comes from Hassam, who says, uh, what are your thoughts of super Mombasa grass? Uh, he says, it's believed here in Egypt to have the highest protein content of all grasses. Hassam, unfortunately, I have no experience with this super Mombasa grass. I've seen it uh, online and stuff. It looks like it's really tall and leafy and everything else. I just, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the experience. And it was just like I was saying a minute ago where you got to, every, every area is a little different. Every farm's a little different. Try some things out. See if that works for you, for you and let us know what you find out. We'd appreciate it. We're going to get to more of your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag right after this. It's planting season. Race against the clock season. Mistakes can't happen season. And no one helps you face it all like John Deere. Putting technology in your hands that gets you in and out of the field faster. That makes your spacing and depth more accurate. And that gives you the confidence that this season will be your best season. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. 
The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. As a 100% employee-owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. Don't turn your fertilizer application plan into a guessing game. Understand exactly how much fertility you need to reach your yield goals with the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App. Simply enter your crop and your yield goal and the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App calculates the amount of nutrition needed to keep your crop healthy and working for you. Quit playing guessing games with your fertility needs. Download the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App today. Available on the Apple App Store and in Google Play. Applying nitrogen in my planter is an important part of our system. It's efficient and puts nitrogen right in the root zone. Hi, Greg Souter. 360 tanks make on-planter nitrogen much easier. Those 700-gallon tanks keep the tractor balanced, distributing weight evenly over the axles, and they give me great visibility. Plus, with the narrow transport width, mailboxes are safe. Take a good look at 360 Yield Center tractor tanks and see how they help boost efficiency at planting time. At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive, today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutrition N Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Nutrition N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. We're right in the middle of our Ag PhD mailbag. If you've got a question, you can email at radio at agphd.com or you can give us a call 844-44-AG-PHD. One of the things that I don't know that we talk about enough here is just the passion that many people have for agriculture. So check out this email. This is from Lawrence. He says, I'm 83 years old. Retired anesthesiologist. I have degrees in technical agronomy and ag econ. I farm in Kansas. And I sent you my soil tests from 2017 when I got this farm. And I sent you my soil tests now. What should I do next? And he, he sent a kind of a longer email, and I'm just summarizing here quickly. But in I, I will just say he marked up this year's or this yeah, this year's soil test. And just mark down what he thinks he should probably do, and I agree with those, and so I just want to want to go through this real quick. So pH, he's got pH down in the fives. Um, now, it's in some areas gotten a little better than when he got the ground in 2017. Quite frankly, almost everything's gotten a lot better. So his potassium looks good. Um, his phosphorus has gotten better. I would still raise it a little more. He's in the range of 50 to 100 parts per million on a Malik 3 with phosphorus. So it's certainly not bad. Um, I, I, I mean, there's no problem bumping it a little bit more. But one of the things he's got down here that he needs a little more of is zinc. And I agree with that because he's got zinc of 3 to 6 parts per million. And a lot of times we talk about having that in ratio, roughly 10 to 1 phosphorus to zinc. So if you're going to have, let's call it 
90 parts per million of phosphorus, that means you might want 9 parts per million of zinc or thereabouts. Uh, in terms of some of these other nutrients that he marked up, sulfur, you know, sulfur is a leachable, just like nitrate is. So it's nothing to get too worried about. Same kind of thing with boron. He's in the teens for sulfur, and yes, you'd want to get that up. Boron, you got about one part per million. We often talk about calcium. Just divide your calcium number by 1,000, and that'll get you relatively close to how much boron your soil could hold and maybe where you want to go, where you eventually want to go with your boron levels. So if I divide his calcium numbers by 1,000, that means I should be around 2 to 2.3 parts per million on boron. Right now, he's at 1 or the low ones. Um, other than that, he just said, calcium, should I have more calcium? Well, you're going to get a little more calcium, Lawrence, when you get your soil pH up. And you don't have to go crazy, but it does depend on the crop that you're going, going to be planting. So, for example, if let's say at some point you want to have alfalfa out there, well, alfalfa likes a pH real close to 7. Whereas he's talking about crops here like triticale, oats, uh, things like that. You know, it's not in brassicas, it's not that big a deal for those crops. If they're somewhere in the sixes, almost anywhere in the sixes, you're probably going to be just fine. But just kind of pay attention to that. And you can certainly talk to some other people in the industry or look at any of our soils clinic information. He, d he does say here he'd been streaming our soil seminars. By the way, he says, uh, being there a couple years ago in person was great, but it's a little bit more wearing on the body now. <laughs> so. Lawrence, I just want to applaud you for uh, for getting into agriculture. It sounds like this might be your kind of second career. And uh, he did send one picture, too, where it's a bunch of soil. It looks all clumpy. And the biggest thing when we see all those great big clumps of soil, it it's usually one of a couple things and maybe a combination. Uh, working the ground too wet. The other side of it is when you have high magnesium and low organic matter, but your magnesium levels are 14, 15%, your organic matter is 2.5. I mean, sure, I'd love to see the organic matter at 4 or 5, but 2.5% isn't terrible. So I just kind of question, yeah, there was probably some compaction out there before, but then besides that, maybe the ground was just a little bit wet when it got worked. All right, next one is Brian from Michigan. He says, I'm a beginning farmer and I have somehow gravitated towards growing and marketing popcorn as my main crop. But my question is in regards to weed control and popcorn, um, I'm having issues with jimson weed, common lambs quarters, and velvet leaf. So what, what should I do? Well, you have lots of options, Brian. Believe it or not, most regular corn or field corn, as we would often say, herbicides, can be used in popcorn. So we talk about verdict as the as the best kind of combination of group 15 and uh, a PPO or broadleaf killer pre. So, I mean, if it's me, I'm doing verdict pre and post-emerge. Status is amazing. None of those weeds will live if you go spray status. You could also do something like Diflex Duo, for example, that gives you both some dicamba and laudus. So in other words, dicamba plus an HPPD. I mean, you have, you have lots of options, so don't get discouraged. You can absolutely improve that weed control out there. No problem. I mean, now, granted, none of these things are super cheap or anything like that, but still, you can kill those weeds, and uh, and it really shouldn't be that big of an issue. All right, got a couple here at referencing Neil Kinsey. So here's the first one. Uh, let's see, this is also from a Ryan. 
Uh, doesn't say where he's... Oh, wait. Uh, Illinois. Yep, Ryan from Illinois. And he just had a question about... Neil Kinsey, in his hands-on agronomy book, talks about calcium and magnesium and when to apply lime versus gypsum if we're trying to get uh, more calcium out there and things like that. So anyway, Neil says to use not to use gypsum until the calcium's up to 60% base saturation. Well, we have 57% calcium, which is pretty darn close to 60. All right, keep in mind, Ryan, that's with his tests. And his calcium numbers are going to be lower than the numbers we use all the time because it's related to, uh, well, let's put it this way. He puts in other cations. So in other words, when you look at base saturation, you'll see the normal things, calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium, hydrogen, but he throws in other cations. That's basically micronutrients, and that might be 5%. So that means that the number will probably be a little lower. So yeah, if it's me and I, I really wanted to increase my calcium in relation to the magnesium, I'm probably, and my pH is fine, I'm probably going to use gypsum if I'm anywhere close to that 60% that you say that you've got. All right, and then the next one here, let's see, this is from Mike out in Idaho. <laughs> and here's his first line. He goes, wondering if Neil or a Kinsey consultant would look at this as well. So I, I know, Mike, you probably don't trust Darren and me very well, but I'll just tell you two things that Neil or any of his consultants are going to say. Number one, they'd really like it tested at Neil's lab because unless it's tested at Neil's lab, it's kind of hard to know every lab in the country, how they do their, their extraction methods, and are the numbers actually going to be the same? So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is going to be, we'd really like to have a complete test. For example, when I look at your soil test, and one of his comments here was, I'm considering adding more, more calcium. Would that help? Um, I don't have a calcium parts per million, unless I'm missing it somewhere here because uh, I'm not used to reading soil tests from this particular lab. But it looks like I've got calcium a percentage, but I don't have what, in other words, for base saturation, I got a calcium percentage, but I do not have how much calcium is actually out in that soil. And again, maybe I'm just missing it. Maybe I don't see it on here anywhere. But my point is this. Um, for any of those guys, they're going to probably tell you that, first of all. But secondly, when I look at just your test from this particular lab, I see potassium at 65 to 9%. But here's the real issue. I see sodium at 47 to 5.9%. That's a level of sodium that's, number one, already hurting your yield. And number two, when you get sodium plus potassium being that high, it hurts a number of things in that plant. So that's one of the biggest issues that we've got. Now, continuing on with his question here, he says, it's pivot irrigated, shallow topsoil, used to be flood irrigated 25 years ago. I'm using lots of sulfur trying to treat the irrigation water and flush the sodium out. The corn gets five feet tall and it's beautiful, then it, then it never finishes well. It's all downhill the last half of the season. So my personal belief, assuming these soil tests are correct, it looks like you've got a fairly heavy soil. So can I exchange capacity 2021? You got all this sodium out there. With the sulfur you say you're putting out, it looks to me like you've only got 25 or 35 parts per million out there. So I don't feel like you're putting a lot of sulfur out. I don't know what you're actually applying. Maybe you could let us know. But there's certainly not a lot of sulfur sitting in the soil, at least today. 
And then the second thing I'm worried about is, do you have good internal drainage? Do you need tile? I, I mean, tile can be really important. I, I know you, you irrigate, you're in a drier area, but if you've got to flush things out like that excess sodium, you can't flush things out if you don't have good internal drainage. So I would certainly take a look at tile and the possibility of needing that. All right, before we go, just want to say thanks to Alex. He was our producer for today's show. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.